This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents... Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. This week we'll wrap up our conversation with author Jan Brogan, who wrote the book The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice, which is about a murder that happened the night after Harvard's end-of-season breakup dinner in 1976, when more than 40 players went to Boston's Red Light District to celebrate. Two football players were stabbed, one fatally. It made national news and led to the eventual demise of the combat zone. So let's join my conversation in part two of our interview. Danny Popolo, the younger brother, who is, uh, this book is, this, he's like the, he's like the drive because uh, driver of this book. He's uh, he's 19 at the time, and, and and what I've learned from you know when when you murder somebody, you you you're really destroying an estimate eight to ten lives because when you're a, when you're a vic when you're a survivor of a murder vic- victim, your family you never recover. It it's you can get PTSD just by you know, losing someone suddenly, like in a car accident or, but when you throw in murder and the violence to your loved one and the machinations of the criminal justice system, not once, but twice where you have to provide testimony, you have to go through the details of this again, you, and trials are very much about the defendant's rights, right? They're all, they're not about the victim and you go through this. So Danny will really never get over this to this day. He will never get over this. At that point, he's 19. There is because they're from the North End, although they've moved to Jamaica Plain. Uh, there, they have no connections to the mob at all. The family is very religious. They do have a business with restaurant business where they provision restaurants. So they have a lot. They know a you know the father went to elementary school with the Angulo brothers. They offered him a corner when he got out of the military, and he said no. You know, with all due respect, no, that's not the direction we're going in with my family. But they have connections, and there's all sorts of rumors that this will never go to trial, that these guys are going to be whacked in prison. And, and I mean, it's, the rumors are so strong, they actually go to, there's actually a story where they go to the sheriff, and he says, no, they're safe. I have got them safe. They're not going to get killed. Right? That's, that's how strong the rumors are. That I talked to reporters who said they didn't think it would ever come to trial. Cause, and not to mention the, the North End, 
owns the combat zone and they're losing something like 50,000 a week in lost revenues because the city has shut it down. So there's all sorts of motivation to, to whack them. And it's not like this is it's never happened before, you know. Right. I mean, right. it happened a lot in the south and, you know, let let's just leave the door unlocked and see what right. happens. Right. And, and and Andy Popolo is, you know, he's the bright light for the north end. Not right. many kids come out of the North End and, and, and go to Harvard. And, you know, he was very much, you know, he would have the whole North End at the Harvard, the home Harvard football games. He's a football star. And, and they're like, no one's going to live. So Danny's here in this. Every time he goes to the North End, where, you know, his family still has a business there. His, like someone will say to him, don't worry, Danny. This is going to get taken care of. Don't worry. It's weird to hear. Yeah. It's like... You, you want to hear it be like, oh, that's great. But then it's just also kind of like, it's just, it's just an odd thing to be told. But the family is very religious. They put their faith in the criminal justice system. They love, to this day, they love Tom Mundy, who, who fought very hard for them. But I think the problem was Tom, like when you're, when you lose someone to murder, what you want is the maximum justice, right? If you're told the maximum justice is Leon Easterling, spending life in prison uh, for murder, then that's what you want. You know, in cities, in states that have capital punishment, you want them to get the, you know, you want them to fry. Uh, Danny never wanted him to, them to fry. He wanted him because that's what maximum justice was. But they, they were told maximum justice is all three of them going to prison for life with no parole. And that's first degree. Right, first degree. And, and remember, this is, becomes very important because people... In, in you know, the family is grieving and friends will say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to Andy. But what was he doing in the combat zone that night? This is what the family hears all the time as if he deserved it. You know, what was he doing? And even when I was when I was doing my research, the people would say to me, oh, that's that kid who tried to get his wallet back from the prostitute. And I would say, no, it's not. Victim, blame, victim blaming. I mean, and, we see it all the time. The book, people will say to me, well, it's really the Harvard football teams that, you know, it's really their fault. They were so privileged to go to the combat zone. You know, I say to them, look, they were 18, because of the drinking lunch, they were 18, 19-year-old boys playing, you know, for the Harvard football team. They went for a drink together with every other, you know, what everybody was, well, everybody was doing at that time. They, you know, it might have been stupid, but they didn't deserve it. I mean, what does 18, what do an 18, 19 year old college kids do? I mean, it's part of the repertoire of a college student is to go out and party. I mean, it just is, unless you're. I mean, they weren't throwing rocks at school buses full of of black kids. No. They had nothing to do with the city's, you know, racial problems, but. They were happy playing football for Harvard. It's, it's important for them to have justice, but it's important even more because of this stain on, on their fallen hero. You know, they get the convictions they want and it's that, that feeling is very short lived because, um, you know, the, the defense attorneys led by Henry Owen appeal, you know, based and they appeal in a, a bunch of different ways. They appeal, they say there wasn't enough evidence to, po- to support joint venture and, and, uh, the jury, you know, this is overly harsh and the jury and because of jury selection. So the state high court will actually come back and they will say, no, there is plenty of evidence to support joint venture conviction of all three of them. But because of the jury selection, we have to retry it. So to the family, 
That feels like a technicality. So between the first trial and the second trial, the city begins to change, right? The city starts to get sick of all this violence around the schools. Trixie Palladino, Louise Day Hicks, and I think John Connor, who all, all the leaders of the anti-busing movement, they will be voted out in the next election, right? What's happening is, as opposed to actually integrating the schools, what happens is anybody who is white leaves the city or puts their kid in parochial school. So very quickly, it's now a, um, a, a minority, majority school system. So there's nobody to, there's nobody to, to protest. So the violence actually starts to leave the schools and it works its way into the neighborhoods. But great. Yeah, it works its way into the neighborhood. So um, but the school issues and, and, and there's a lot of stuff that comes out in the, the, the two and a half years. Uh, one of them is sh- shortly after the Popolo uh, convictions. There's a white, there's a black victim named, named Brian Nelson, 18 year old. And he's with two of his friends in a car. Uh, his, his, his brother is a, a Vietnam, a fallen Vietnam hero who actually has a, a square named after him. in I think Medford and they get into it with a, with a van of white, nine white kids. They wind up spinning out into some snow and they get into a fight. Nelson gets murdered with a tire iron and a, 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 they think it's a broken glass. He's murdered. Not only will none of those white boys who were there get, get joint venture won't be applied to them. The, the one kid who is charged, he's a, is a former Marine. He's not, he's, I think 19. He will only be charged with manslaughter and an all white jury will find him innocent. So the contrast between those two, those two outcomes is very stark. This is also when Carson Beach is, um, that's, that's the beach in Southie. There's a lot of black, white violence there. And they're, you know, they're arresting white kids. And, but nobody, when it comes to, uh, they're getting punishment, uh, there's not much. There's, there's, there's um, a black school, a school of black kids comes up from, um, I think it's Ohio or Pennsylvania, to see the Bunker Hill Monument uh, on a field trip. And they will be attacked by three white guys with hockey sticks. And they will arrest three three ki- white kids and uh, they will be found innocent by an all-white jury. Although in that particular case, there, there appears to be, it looks like the police work was shoddy. They might have not gotten the three white ones because they can't be identified at the trial. So... It looks like that was, but the, the, the optics of it are just horrendous. Uh, and then to tap it off three, I think it's like two weeks before the, the trial, the second Popolo trial will begin in nine, in the fall of 1979, Daryl Williams, a 15 year old black football player in the playing football in the Charlestown field will be shot by three white kids up on a, uh, roof and he will get a, tw- a 21 bullet, 22 bullet through his, and he will, he will be in a coma and it's not, and it's looked like he's not going to make it. And this is all in the news when they tried the second trial. So the second trial is the first time what's called the Soares decision is put into practice. So the this new Soares decision, which will later be used um, as precedent for the federal U S Supreme court Batson decision says that 
when you're picking a jury trial, you can't, you, if you start, you start, you know, like if you're on your third Italian that you struck without giving a reason, we, we start, the, the other sides keep, keep track and you can appeal the case. So it's a free for all jury selection the second time, but it's like, hey, you've got two Italians, you just cut, you know. So the final jury ends up with, I think, three blacks in it. And uh, one might be an alternate. I think, it's, I think it's three blacks. And they will come to a very, very different conclusion. And that's where I'm going to leave you with. So people actually read the book. But a lot of the, a lot of the stories, uh, to, to, to talk about a little bit more about Danny, Danny is not the, the, the athletic star that his brother is, but he is a big guy who is an excellent boxer. He has, plus he grew up in the North End. So he has the, he has the, the motivation and he has the means to exact revenge. And the book is largely about this battle with revenge and what it all means. Yeah, that's... Uh... And how there is a very fine line between justice and revenge. That there is. That there is. That is an intriguing, intriguing way to end the interview because okay. it is definitely a cliffhanger. And I definitely would recommend anybody who's interested in this era to go back. I mean, we have YouTube now and you can see all these clips from the AP about busing and just the horrible reactions that the city had to, you know, these decisions, but it's just, it's just a shocking case. And the idea that there was a red light district in Boston, which like you mentioned before, it was, it's always considered a very puritanical city. And uh, it, it's sort of one of those things that's kind of, for my generation, flown under the radar. And it's sort of, I, would you compare it to the way that Times Square was, or was it even worse than that? I think it was worse than Times Square because I don't know if the mob owned Times Square. Although the, the mob owned much of pornography over the, the, across the nation. Um, it's probably a smaller footprint, uh, but more violence. Okay. Um, and uh, it was, I think ABC came to do a story on it. Um, it. It was it was just a wild west. And really, it's the um, DVR that puts, you know, the, it, sh it begins shrinking after this case. But it's a slow, it's really the DVR that puts it out of business. Now it's only... There's only two very tame looking strip clubs and it's all luxury. Um, as a matter of fact, I did a book club. I, I, I've done two book clubs. I've given them tours of the, of the combat zone where everything happened. And, uh, you know, you can't believe it now. It's all, it's like one of the, one of the book clubs was at the Ritz, you know, <laughs> so which, is, which has a beautiful, well, like from this Ritz apartment, there's a view of the alley where Andy was murdered. Oh no. The city, the city has changed a lot. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it still gets dinged all the time for being racist. And I was going to ask, but you know, now, now we have a black police commissioner, like the head of, we have a, we have a, um, an Asian mayor that the city council is, is predominantly of color, uh, and, and black. So things are changing. I think we have a black district attorney, you know, so 
the power is changing. Um, the city is also very affluent. One of the one of the problems is that uh, you know it's hard to live down. It's hard to live down by that kind of reputation. What happens is middle class professional blacks, you know, when they get job opportunities, they don't want to relocate here, right? So you you know you you still have a you know a, a the poorest population uh, is is black. There's a lot of inequity in in terms of uh, uh, salaries and in terms of you know the colleges. You know you're like I one of the guys who helped me a lot on this book, Charles Walker, who once headed the mass discrimination. He, he he's a young black woman. He said when he said he wanted to go to college at uh, BC law school at BC, his mother cried. You know. She did like, and and he told me about experiences when he first got here. You know, they got lost and they were stopped by a cop, and they were really nervous. You know, from the cop, and the cop said, "Look, you got to get the hell out of this neighborhood. You know, you're going to get killed. You know, go this. You know, the cop was actually trying to help him." It's but. so true, and I mean, they did the same stuff in Cleveland. I mean, it's so so true like they would stop if, if they saw you in a neighborhood that you weren't supposed to be in they'd just be yeah. like don't stop at any red lights and just get the hell out of here right. <laughs> it's like what <laughs> no this is you know like remember boston got known for the the photo it's called the soiling of old glory there's the uh, white kids they were protesting at boston city hall they had a flag you know they're protesting busing and uh, a, a black businessman just like walks through the center to to get to his meeting and they attack him with the flag and that won a Pulitzer Prize. It's in 1976. It's the, it's the, that happened just maybe six months before this murder, four months before this murder. So it's Boston's at its zenith of racism at the time. Jeez. Yeah. That's a really, it's a really, it was a really rough time across the country, but Boston for sure was bearing the brunt of it. And I mean, again, a lot of it has to go has to do with you know where these people originated from and racism is a disease that can just spread fast and furiously and it's a shame that it exists but it does and it's good to know that it has gotten more diversified as far as the leaders and stuff but as we both know living in a city like Boston is not affordable for a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and most people. Yeah, and so right. it's just, it's a really slippery slope. And I just feel like, I think about what you mentioned earlier when you said that Southie, you mentioned Southie wouldn't allow black people to live there. Yeah. Well, so there was a lot of, there was in the, in the public housing. Okay. There was a, it was a huge public housing and it had been all white historically. And so they actually blacks had to sue to, 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 um, to integrate it. And so that, so, uh, so that's a fight, right? That's a fight going on. I think, I think the housing battles get settled after busing. So I think this is still very much. And remember, I, I failed to mention that, um, Unemployment. This is also during the recession. Oh so yes. Unemployment in those poor white neighborhoods is fifteen percent. It's twenty percent in the black neighborhoods, and you have a lot of young men coming of age. It's the baby boom. That's a uh, so, powder keg. Yeah, yeah, it's a powder keg. So that's 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 a a lot of what went on, and uh, and you can find out more by reading your book. Yeah, and you know, uh, I find that people who who listen to podcasts love audiobooks. Yes. So it's 
a reader. It's a great audiobook. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can get it, you know, at your local independent bookstore, you can get it, you know, on Amazon, uh, you can get it at, at the UMass website. Um, audible, I'm assuming. Yeah. Audible. Yeah. It's, it's audible and it's, um, you know, it's, I, it's, it's, it's a good listen. So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking very much, uh, forward to diving deeper into the story and it's so intriguing. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of listeners out there that don't realize how bad it really was for a lot of this country. And I know that we are going backwards in a lot of ways right now. And it's, so they're getting a little bit of a taste of what it was like, but this is nothing compared to what oh, it was back then. One of the best things about this book, and I mentioned it took 10 years to, to get this book started, um, get this book in publishing. Um, but one of the best things was the research because, you know, there's nothing like going back to the 70s to make you feel a lot better about today. <laughs> you, know? you know, there's the 70s, you forget, you tend to think you're living in the worst of times. But the 70s were really the worst of times. <laughs> I, I know for a fact, because I always go through all the, you know, newspapers.com and go through and look at old newspapers for stories and stuff like that. And just the way that they, you know, it would be like two gay men, like in the headlines, like what the hell does that have to do with the story? Right. You know, it just, it was the way that things were portrayed and the way that things have evolved throughout our lifetimes. Yeah. It's wild and like you said you may think and when you look out the window or turn on the cable news the world's falling apart but we're still better off than we were yeah but the bar the bar's been raised it was a very low bar then you know it's 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 uh it's it's been it's been raised and for you know and that's important that it is raised and that we all still work to improve uh you know there's a lot of improvements to be made Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know if you can't look back and say that you know, things have improved a little. If, if you can't, if you can't see change, then what's the point of working for change? Cause then change, change doesn't exist. You have to believe that things can change uh, and, and that you can work towards change. And the seventies shows you that like things can get better, maybe at a glacial pace, but they can, you know, I mean, they could still get better. I mean, maybe there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, institutional racism and, and uh, subtle racism, but then it was just like, in your face with a knife racism, you know, so, or with a rocks at your children. The idea that you would have, again, racism and hate is taught. It's not something you're born with. Kids aren't born to see color. It's something that they learn from their parents. And if your parent is out there throwing rocks, you just, it's just perpetuating the problem. Right. And the guy knows the language that's going on at home, but exactly that's what they're doing in public. Just imagine what yeah. they're doing in behind the closed doors. And it's and, and and to be fair to the Irish, if you if you look when I I researched this, I researched this in depth. It started with the English coming, the Brahmins in Boston. Oh, and when the Irish came here, that they just they just treated the Irish like absolute crap. And so the I when the Irish got in power, they felt like okay, that's our turn now. We'll you know, we'll we'll, we'll We'll treat the newcomers like crap. And, and and that's one reason, like, they treated the Italians like crap. That's one reason that, um, you know, they, they Andy Popolo was so determined to make friends with blacks because he felt like the underdog, being an Italian. So, you know, it's just a... Isn't it weird how that works? Each uh, generation kind of has another... Look at what's going on. It's just like, 
okay, we're going to hate the Irish. We're going to hate the English. We're going to, and of course the English, you know, the let's just go and take over all this land all around the world. And just. (laughs) The difference is that, you know, blacks have not been able to make that much progress because of the the rigidness of of, of the racism. So they've definitely had worse, but, uh, but the world does change. It does change. uh, And hopefully, hopefully it will continue to improve but where can people find you uh so you can i as mentioned you can find the book at, at any uh, independent bookstores or uh amazon or you know ems um you can get get there through my website www.jambrogan.com you can follow me on instagram where i think it's jambrogan underscore and facebook where i think it's jambrogan 07 and uh, Twitter, where it's just Jan Brogan, or X, where it's just Jan Brogan. Um, I want to make a plug. So uh, some of the uh, editing of this, a lot of this editing, I'm very lucky to have a son who's also a writer. Uh, and he was my, he and my, I have a writing partner, um, the Barbara Shapiro, um, author of The Art Forger. So she and my son, who's Frank Santo, were the editors on this book, uh, my first editors on this book. And he now has a novel out, uh, just out from a, a, a Chicago press called Taurus Books. And his book, his novel, which has gotten fabulous reviews, is called The Birth Parents, one word. And it's about uh, kind of a, a white savior who goes into the South Bronx as a caseworker and thinks he's going to save the world and learns very differently. It's good. It's got great characters. It's, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's a really great book. So, you know, Yep, yep. It's on Amazon. It's on. Uh, it's it's a tortoise book. Tortoise, tortoise, tortoise books. I think Chicago, and it's in you know, it can be ordered through your independent bookstore. So and that's called the birth parents. The birth parents, one word. Yeah. Very cool. So. Very cool. Well, Jan, I have uh, enjoyed our conversation. I know that we've gone a little bit longer than we had planned, but this is a very deep story with a lot of rich history that may better be kept in the past but uh <laughs> you know it is one of those things that you can't avoid talking about so i hope for danny and i hope for the papalo family that justice is eventually made or whatever i think but i think what we want most of all is to separate the their the son's name andy papalo from the city's racism because he had nothing to do with the way that you know the, the situation of the trial and he was the victim in all this, and uh, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything wrong, and uh, it, it was a big loss to society. Can I ask one last question? Because yeah. I, I kind of missed the opportunity before. When you mentioned that you were in, uh, you were studying journalism, and you were going yeah. to school in the area, were you aware of how bad it was? No, which shows you just how self-centered um, you are when you're a young adult. Because um, I was actually a journalism major at Boston University. Uh, and I, I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't understand the extent of it, you know? And, and I had heard about this murder as well. And uh, when someone told me, I just started as a screenplay, when someone told me that Danny Popolo was looking for a screenwriter, I said, why the hell was Danny Popolo looking for a screenwriter? And he said, well, you know, remember that murder of the Harvard football player in the combat center? I was like, that's his brother. I was like, oh. And then I started, you know, investigating, and then I started working with Danny. And, um, we had a director uh, and everything, but, you know, I knew that, you know, I did it on spec because I knew we didn't have any money. 
which means you only get paid if they make it into a movie, which means you never get paid. So my deal was I'll write the screenplay, but I have to have the rights to do a book and the book has to be my way because I'm a journalist. And all this is, all this is in the book. So uh, Danny and I had an agreement. So got to pick up the uh, book, got to pick it up. Pick up the book, pick up the book. Even listen to it. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right, Jen, thanks so much for your time. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope to have you on for your next book. Are you working uh, on anything right now? I am. I'm working, although it's not true crime. So oh, it's okay. On, I mean, all right. So I'm working on a book. Um, I actually write novels too. I wrote four murder mysteries. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, but what I, my real true love is history. So I wrote a historical novel about the, the women who went whaling with their husbands in the 19th century. They were the captain's wives. And uh, I couldn't get, I couldn't get my agent to, to sell it. Um, so I, I, I wanted to reconfigure it and I wound up interviewing, I wanted to introduce a modern day whaling woman. And my idea was uh, that she would be a descendant of one of these whaling wives who so fascinate me. And by a weird stroke of coincidence, I wound up meeting a, a whale scientist who was related to, is related to one of the, and I knew the woman she was talking about because I'd done so much research. Marianne Sherman, you know her, you know. So, uh, and her, her name is Nan Hauser and she's a pretty famous whale scientist. She was saved by a humpback whale from a tiger shark in 2017. And they were, she's in a, also been in a lot of nature programs. So it went viral to 600 million views. <laughs> and when I went to interview her just to get background for my novel, she said to me, you wouldn't want to write my book, would you? And I said, I would love to write. Because halfway through, she's spending her life saving the whales. Halfway through this, she realizes she's a descendant of a whaling captain. And on her mother's side, the family was very big into financing whale, whaling. And so there's just a lot of fascinating things about her life and her work and also, you know, making her way as a whale scientist uh, in through the, you know, the eighties the and nineties and, um, you know, reaching her, her level of, of attainment and all she's been able to do for, I mean, she's established a whale sanctuary in Rarotonga and she's just has done marvelous work. So that's another my, example of how times change. Yeah. Right. Right. So, well, that's very cool. That's very interesting. So, I love so, all those uh, 19th century books about whaling and Arctic expeditions yeah. and that kind of stuff. It's, it's super interesting stuff. And uh, again, Jan, thanks so much for your time. And uh, if you have any final words. I'm also working on a book. I'm trying to put together a, a, a book about the very first fentanyl bust, which was in Cleveland and, and Boston. Um, I actually know one of the participants in it who went to college with him. So I've been fascinated. He was a sociopath. I've been fascinated by him. That but, sounds really interesting considering I'm from Cleveland. And uh, yes, that, uh, wow. I'm, I'm trying to find the, the DEA guys who, uh, who investigated and I've been, in, you know, trying to locate them. So uh, if anybody was involved in that first fentanyl bus and is listening to this podcast, please contact me through my website. <laughs> I'll reach out to some FBI contacts that I have and see if they know any DEA agents. I'll send you I'll send you the details on the case. Okay, sounds good. Great. Okay, thank you so much and thank you for having me. It was really Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been okay. such a pleasure. Okay, so, thanks. thank you and have a wonderful day. 
All right. Thanks to Jan Brogan, award-winning author. Check out her website, janbrogan.com. And again, she is quite the prolific author. She has been an award-winning author of four mysteries. So check her out. Definitely check her out. I can't thank her enough for coming on the show. And thank you to Maureen Boyle for the referral. Keep those coming. And again, thank you guys for listening to the show. Without you, I wouldn't be here. And again, you know I drop new episodes every Friday, so you can expect a new one next Friday as well. So thanks again to Jan Brogan. Thank you, the listeners. You can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And until next time, as always, stay healthy and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming up on 5 Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.